0: Well, good morning, church, and Happy New Year. Good seeing you guys. Look around. Everyone who's not here this morning was way was up way too late last night, so call them and let them know, okay? Um, this week we're actually ending our Christmas series um, that we've been doing for the last several weeks called The Christmas Tree. And um, if you missed any of the past weeks of this series, you can always go on YouTube and get caught up by searching First Light South Portland Church. And in this series, um, we've been talking about the genealogy of Jesus found in the Gospel of Matthew, the first out of the, the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, if you're much into, you know, genealogies, I don't know if there are any genealogy fans out there. Have any of you ever done like Ancestry.com or anything like that? Can I see a show of hands? Okay, a couple of you have done that. But if you're, if you're um, you know, into genealogies or don't know much about genealogies, Um, I have a genealogy story. A few years ago, my daughter, um, Liberty, who's um, back there doing projection for us up in the sound booth, she had this big project in middle school where she had to do this massive family tree and go back and research all the people that she was related to. And at first, um, I hate to admit this, but at first I I thought this is the dumbest project they've ever assigned to my child. And I was dreading the project because I knew that as her parent, um, that Julie and I were going to probably have to do a lot of the work on a project like this of looking up our family's history and um, you know, putting it all together. And in addition to that, for those of you who don't maybe know my personality super well, um, I'm, I'm a futuristic person. Um, The way that I'm kind of wired, the way that my brain works is I'm very futuristic. I'm always looking ahead. I'm always thinking strategically, futuristically. What's the next step? One, two, three, how to get there. Um, I, I don't often look in the past, I don't often look backwards. And it's funny because my wife has context, which is looking at past history as like her number one strength, and I have futuristic as my number one strength. So we're kind of in a tug-of-war game in life, oftentimes, between, between the two of us. But, but for me, I, I just was like, well, what's the point of you know, looking back in history at a, at a bunch of dead people in our family tree? You, the other thing is, doing something like that, you never know what you're gonna find out, right? you never know who you might be related to. So it is also a little bit of a, a risky exercise. It's a little bit of a dangerous exercise. But what we discovered, and this was kind of fun, is we discovered that our family actually had some, some interesting stuff in, in our past history. I mean, my wife's side you know, primarily um, came from Ireland and stuff like that. Um, from, from my family's side, if you went back hundreds and hundreds of years, we actually were related to some Indian royalty from India. And um, we were even distantly related to um, Gandhi, the famous civil rights activist who used nonviolent protest and inspired people like Martin Luther King Jr. And when people trace their, their heritage, that's one of the reasons they do something like that, right? Is to, it's kind of fun, and you get to kind of learn a little bit more about your family and your history and who you might be related to. Now, if you discover you're related to Charles Manson, Or, you know, the third cousin of Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, that's something you don't bring up at the New Year's party, right? That's not something you're to share with people. Generally, you're looking for, like, cool, famous people, generals, politicians, presidents, people who did great things in history that you're going to want to talk about. You're looking for the good things. But as we've said from the very beginning of this series, when Matthew sat down and he began to give us the account of the life of Jesus. And he's writing all of this kind of stuff down. Instead of beginning with a story about a baby in Bethlehem and angels and shepherds and all the cool things about the Christmas story that we find, you know, in the book of Luke, I mean, Matthew eventually gets there, but he starts off by doing a little bit of research on the family tree of Jesus. And he begins with this genealogy, this Christmas tree, if you will, before the Christmas story. And his goal was to prove to his Jewish audience that Jesus was related to the right people. That first of all, Jesus was related to Father Abraham, which was very important. And secondly, that he was also in the lineage of King David, the most famous king of Israel. Because everyone in that Jewish culture understood these prophecies from the Old Testament or what is now our Old Testament about who the Messiah would be and where the Messiah would come from. And through all that prophecy, it was pretty clear that the Messiah had to be related to those two people, to Father Abraham and to King David. And so he goes all the way back to Father Abraham and he starts to trace the lineage of Jesus and he goes through King David and then he makes it to Jesus to make that point. And his point is to say, yeah, Jesus is legit. He's related to the right people to be the Messiah. But as we've discovered in this series, Matthew didn't stop there. In fact, he started doing something very odd not only did he underscore the right people, Father Abraham, King David, but he also starts to highlight some of the crazy, jacked up, even R-rated Bible characters in the family tree of Jesus. He talks about people that you would have skipped over and that I would have left out, that we would have hoped that nobody would have found out about. For example, he lists four women in the genealogy of Jesus in a culture that was very patriarchal that would have only listed men. That would have been culturally appropriate. But no, he lists four women in the family tree. And three of those women that he lists were not Jewish. So he basically points out the fact that Jesus wasn't pure blood through the Jewish line, that he was a little bit of a mutt. Why would Matthew point that out? And then there are a couple of people in Jesus' lineage that had really, really shady backgrounds and did some awful things in history. And again, as you read Matthew's account, he seems to just kind of stop and pause on these people, and he focuses his audience's attention on these people. Why would he do that? Why are these people included? And the reason they're included, I believe, as we've been saying over the last few weeks, is because these crazy people were not just part of the family tree of Jesus in that story, but they were the point of Matthew's story. See, Matthew was writing to a very religious group of people that believed that in order to have a right standing with God, that you had to come to God based on what you had or hadn't done in life. In fact, all world religions, even to this day, essentially embrace this same kind of approach. That God, I'm coming to you today and I need you to do something for me. God, I need you to bless my kids. I need you to, to fix my health. I need you to you know help me get through finals. I need you to bless my finances. And the reason, God, that you should do this for me and kind of take me seriously and pay attention, is because I'm essentially a good person. And here are all the good things that I've done. And here are all the bad things that I've avoided doing. And generally speaking, that's the platform that most people stand on in their approach to God, is essentially, God, if you really even exist, please help me out because I try to be good. And so Matthew is writing to an audience, and that's their whole approach when it comes to God. The problem with this is that there were many people in Matthew's culture, including Matthew himself, who knew that if that was the approach to getting to God, if it was based on how good you were, personal righteousness, self-righteousness, then they had no shot. That they were never gonna be able to have a relationship with God, that they were never gonna have peace between them and God because God is perfect and holy and righteous, and they were so not. And Matthew knows that he's about to launch into the greatest story ever told in the history of the world. It's a story where God is going to reveal something amazing that humanity has been invited to approach God on a relational level, on a personal relational level, And the foundation of that relationship is not going to be based on what they have or haven't done. The foundation of that relationship is going to be based instead on what God has done on their behalf. Specifically, Matthew gets to tell the story of God sending his one and only son into the world to be the Savior. And not simply the Savior of the Jews. And not simply the Savior of good people but the savior of all people for all time. So that every person on earth would be able to approach God, not based on what they had done, but based on what God had done for them. This was a radical new theology. This was a radical new approach and way of looking at God based on forgiveness and mercy and grace. So as Matthew traces the lineage of Jesus, he stops and he underscores the fact that all along history, time and time and time again, God has distributed grace and mercy to people who didn't deserve it. And the reason that these people are a part of the story of Jesus is because they're the point of the story that Matthew is trying to tell. The reason that you're a part of the story of Jesus, in spite of what you've done or haven't done, is because you too are a point of the story. So to his audience, Matthew begins by saying, remember all along in history that God has chosen the unworthy, that God has selected outcasts and misfits and sinners. Why? Because he is a God of grace, and mercy and forgiveness. So here we go. Let's dive in. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. dum 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 remember? We stopped there a few weeks ago and we unpacked the story of Judah and Tamar, which was an incredible story. R-rated scandal in Jewish history. Continuing in verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. There it is. She's listed. Perez, the father of Hezron. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, for a Jewish audience reading the writings of Matthew, when they would have got to the name Rahab, they would have all gone, ooh. That would have been the reaction because Rahab had a label. In in fact, the, the story of Rahab in the Old Testament highlights how she got a label. Now, this isn't unusual. Throughout the Bible, throughout history, people get a label or a nickname. Often famous people do. Let's see if you guys can fill in some of the blanks of some other characters in the Bible and in history who have gotten a label to their name. There's John the Baptist. That's right. He was known for dunking people, right? How about this one? Alexander the? That's right. Attila the? That's right. Conan the? That's right. Buffy the? Vampire slayer. Very good. You guys got that one. How about this one? One of my favorites. Jabba the Hut. That's right. Those last couple ones um, actually aren't in the Bible, so don't search for those, by the way. Okay? But throughout history and throughout fiction, it's not uncommon for people to get a word associated with their name. And unfortunately for poor Rahab, she was known as Rahab the what? Prostitute. Rahab the harlot. Rahab the ho-ho-ho, Merry Christmas. Okay? Now, This creates some tension, wouldn't you agree, in the genealogy of Jesus, right? And Rahab, as we're going to discover, again, wasn't Jewish. She was a Canaanite. She was actually part of the enemy of the Jews. She was with a group of people that God sent the Jews to remove from that part of the world so they could establish Israel, the nation of Israel, in the promised land. But right in the middle of the family tree of Jesus, we find Rahab, the prostitute. And this creates tension in the story because God's law was pretty clear, especially the law that he had given to Moses. He said, you can't have any of this sexual immorality in your midst. And there was very harsh punishments described for those who were harlots people who were engaged in prostitution but now we find a literal harlot in the middle of the Christmas story and again Matthew could have skipped over this one Matthew could have just completely ignored this he could have stuck with the guys but he stops and he reminds everyone that in the middle of the story of Jesus a story of grace And mercy and forgiveness is a woman in Scripture whose reputation was tainted throughout her entire life and throughout history. So now let me read you some of her story. If you want to follow along, we're going to start in Joshua chapter 2. So if you have your Bible or Bible app with you on your smartphone, you can go ahead and jump to Joshua chapter 2. And while you're getting there, I'm going to give you a little background info leading up to where we encounter Rahab in this story. See, Israel was becoming a brand new nation. The Hebrews had just followed Moses out of Egypt, and they've basically been a slave nation in Egypt for hundreds and hundreds of years. All they've known is slavery. That's all they've known for generations. But now they're free, and they're finally moving out of the wilderness and entering into this promised land that God has told them about. This was the land that Father Abraham used to live in until the Hebrews ended up in Egypt. If you remember, because of the story of Joseph and the famine that came, and Joseph brought his family into Egypt and saved them, and pretty soon that family began to grow and grow and grow and multiply and multiply and multiply and multiply. And then a new pharaoh comes along and he's threatened by this group of foreigners that has gotten so big in Egypt and he decides to enslave all the Hebrews and they become this slave nation for hundreds and hundreds of years. Okay, so that's the history. But now they're free. And now they're finally headed home. And biblical scholars estimate there are about two million Hebrews now trying to return to this place known as the promised land. And they cross the Jordan River, and they're about to move into this area that's controlled by this powerful city known as Jericho. And Moses is now gone. They have a new leader named Joshua. And so Joshua sends a couple guys into Jericho as spies to find out what they're up against So that they can retake the land that God has promised them. Well, these two spies, they arrive in Jericho and they sneak into the city. And as they scout it out and they start looking around, they get spotted. And the king of Jericho hears that there are two Hebrew spies among them in his city. And so the king says to all of his guards, I want you to find them. And I want you to bring them to me. We're going to torture them for information. We're going to kill them. We need to get rid of these spies. And so the soldiers set out, looking for these spies in the city as the sun begins to set. And as they gather information, they hear a report that these spies were last seen ducking into a house along the wall of Jericho. And it happened to be the home of Rahab, the prostitute. Now, the Bible doesn't give details, but it does say that instead of barging into Rahab's house, The guards go up to her door and they knock on the door. And my guess is they did that because Rahab's house wasn't a house that you would want to barge into, right? You slam open the door. Oh, sorry, general didn't realize you were visiting Rahab today. Please don't fire me, right? Or put me in front of a firing squad. And so they knock on the door and Rahab comes out and they said, Have you seen two Hebrews? We've been told that they entered your home. And she says, yes, yes, I have. They were here, but they left before the city gates were going to be locking for the night. And so the soldiers, they leave and they go out around the city looking for these two spies who they think have just left the city. Meanwhile, Rahab goes upstairs onto her roof and we learn that these two Hebrew spies are hiding up there, that they're still on her roof. Listen to this, Joshua 2, picking up in verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you. And that word written Lord in the Bible, it's a Hebrew word that was very rarely used to depict God because it was such a special word. In fact, it was such a special word that many Jewish people would not even speak it. They might write it down, but they wouldn't even speak it out loud because it was such a sacred name for God. It was considered the most sacred name for God. Now, we don't know what language the spies and Rahab communicated in, but when this text was written, The name chosen to describe God, to reflect what Rahab was saying, was the name Lord that was the highest name you could use for God. It literally meant the existing one, the name above all names, the great I am, the one true God. And so what Rahab was saying was, however you view God, as big as you think God might be, I believe that about your God. I believe that your God is the one true God, bigger than all the gods that I was taught to believe in, bigger than all the gods of my ancestors and my people. And I believe your God, the one true God, has given you this land. Verse 9, and then she says this, all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did, what what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed, who you annihilated. And there's that word Lord again. And Rahab shares that her people are terrified of this God who actually performs literal miracles that were witnessed by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, like the parting of the Red Sea. Verse 11, when we heard it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. She says, I believe in spite of what I've been taught, in spite of my culture, in spite of the way that I've been raised, I believe that your God is the one true God supreme. So there's this incredible faith that we see in Rahab just based on what she's heard about God. She has very little knowledge. She's not Jewish. She didn't learn any of the history. She has very little knowledge about God, but she has an amazing amount of faith. Continuing in verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. So she asked him to make a deal. She believes that their God is the one true God. And so she's gonna help them. She's gonna protect them. But because of her kindness, she's saying, will you also have mercy on me and my family when God gives you this city? And the men make a vow to her. They make a vow. They make a promise to her. Verse verse 14, they say, our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So... She let them down by a rope through a window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. And she lets them down through her window, kind of Rapunzel style, and she gives them specific directions on how to avoid being caught by the guards who are patrolling outside of the city. And these two spies eventually make their way back to Joshua. And when they meet with Joshua, they report that everybody in the city of Jericho is scared to death. In fact, they may just open the gates when they show up and let them in. And what happens next is is a little bit of Bible history. Perhaps many of you have heard it at some point in your life, especially if you grew up in church and you went to children's church or Sunday school. You've heard the famous story of the battle of Jericho, Joshua and the battle of Jericho. And if you recall the story, the generals all meet with Joshua. And Joshua says, okay, here's the plan from God on how we're going to attack the city. We're not going to need any weapons for this battle. Just comfortable sneakers. Because here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a lot of walking. In fact, we're going to take all 2 million of us, and we're going to march around the city wall once each day for six days. And then on the seventh day, we're going to walk around the city seven times, and we're all going to shout really, really loud. Any questions? And one of the generals raised his hand. He's like, Joshua, is is this a battle or a parade? Do we have to make a float? Like, what's going on here? I'm a little confused. But that was the plan. The battle was going to be done in such a way that only God could get the credit for the victory. And the whole world was going to know another miracle, that God is the real deal, that he is the one true God, that he is the great I am, just as Rahab believed. So sure enough, they march around the city once a day all week long. And then on the seventh day, they march around the city seven times and they shout. And the walls start to shake. And they just collapse on themselves. And the people of Jericho, if they weren't already terrified, are scared to death. And the Israelites basically just wipe them out. But in the midst of all that chaos, God reaches in and he spares an entire family of Canaanites because of the faith of one Canaanite prostitute. Check it out. Verse 22, Joshua 6. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with the oath to her. And then this is what we learn in verse 25. Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. I I love that last phrase. She lives among the Israelites to this very day. That God is a God of mercy. Grace, who would even spare a sinner, an outsider, a literal enemy of the Israelites, who by her very profession should have been judged and condemned by the law of God and not allowed to live among them, not allowed to live at all. And yet Rahab the prostitute and her entire family live among the Israelites, the Bible tells us, to this very day. And when first century Jewish people were reading the genealogy of Jesus written by Matthew, they knew this story. And this story stands out as such an aberration in Scripture. I mean, this just seems to go against God's holiness and his law and all that should be. Why would God allow a prostitute to become part of his chosen people. But again, that was the point of Matthew's story. And then sometime later, Rahab is just doing life. And and a man named Solomon walks up to her one day, maybe at a coffee bar, and says, how you doing? Can I buy you a cup of coffee? And that first date apparently goes well, and one thing leads to another, and they fall in love. And one day, Solomon says, hey, Rahab, would you marry me? And this Jewish man marries this Canaanite woman who used to be a prostitute. And they have a little baby named Boaz. And Boaz grows up, and one day, he's introduced to a woman named Ruth who, like his mom Rahab, also wasn't Jewish, but was a foreigner and an outsider and a widower. She was considered damaged goods in her culture and her society. But he remembers the love of his mom and his dad, and he falls in love with her. And she has an entire book of the Bible that records their amazing love story. And so Boaz marries Ruth and literally saves her life. And Boaz and Ruth eventually have a grandson, a little guy named Jesse. Not Uncle Jesse from the Dukes of Hazard, but Jesse, the father of the greatest king of Israel, David, the great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz, the great-great-grandson of Rahab, the prostitute. And you see, Matthew pauses, and and he brings all of that to the memory of his readers because he knew that the story of Rahab illustrated something so important and so powerful. It perfectly illustrated the message of Jesus, that here was a woman condemned by the law of Moses, an outcast, an outsider, an enemy, a prostitute, a terrible sinner, in a time when life was ruled by law. And God says, in spite of my law, my grace is bigger than my law. My mercy is bigger than my judgment. My love and forgiveness has no limits. And even though she's guilty because of her lifestyle, my grace, and my mercy, and my love is still available to her. And God incorporates Rahab the prostitute into the lineage of his one and only son, Jesus. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I think that's absolutely incredible. I think it's absolutely incredible. And you know what? I don't think her story is that far away from most of our stories because just like she had a label Rahab the prostitute if I were to ask you to really look inside of yourself and peel back the layers of your heart look at your thoughts look at your past and the things about you that you don't want anyone else to know about you I think the truth is that all of us have some labels too in our lives don't we For some of you, you have the label of ex-husband or ex-wife. You wish you could go back and do some things differently, but you can't. Some of us have labels because we have secrets or habits or addictions. And like Rahab, when you think of approaching God, maybe the first thing that comes to your mind is your label. So you start to back off. Because how could God... Except anyone like me. Gary the glutton, Jamie the jealous, Charlie the Cheater, Allie the addict, Debbie the Depressed. Do you know what I think? I think as Matthew was writing this genealogy, he gets to Rahab the prostitute and he stops, and smiles. And he thinks, i got to include her. i got to include Rahab. And perhaps it's because Matthew had a label as well, right? He was Matthew the what? Tax collector. Matthew the tax collector. But he remembered when Jesus walked up to him one day, looked him eyeball to eyeball, and he didn't say, Matthew, once you quit being a tax collector and clean up your life, then I'll have a conversation with you. Now, he said, Matthew, I want to meet you right where you are at the tax collector booth. I want to meet you right in your mess. Get up and follow me. And so Matthew knows he's about to tell us the story of Jesus, the Jesus who invited all kinds of people with all kinds of labels to follow him, even while they were still wearing their labels oftentimes because his holiness and his righteousness was not overshadowed his mercy and his grace and so rahab the harlot was given the opportunity to become the great 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 grandmother jesus isn't that powerful church isn't that incredible doesn't that stir your heart which has been my hope for this entire series, for this whole Christmas series, for us to rethink our view of God and rethink maybe our whole approach of coming to God. That is not about God, look at me, I've done all these good things. Do I qualify? Please bless me. That whole way of thinking needs to be abandoned because the message of Christmas is that God has done for you what you could not do for yourself. And that you have been invited into a personal relationship with the king of the universe, even while you're still wearing a label, that God invites you to enter, that he leans towards those of us who pulled away from him. And he's saying to you during this Christmas season, I wanna begin a relationship with you, even while you still have on that crazy label. I want to invite you into a relationship with me, not based on what you have or haven't done, but based purely on what I have done for you. I offer you grace and mercy and forgiveness through my son, Jesus. And then don't miss this. He invites us to a relationship with him that does start to change us, that does start to transform us. He doesn't say, I'm going to meet you in your mess and you're going to stay there for the rest of your life. He says, I'm ready to meet you in your mess. Follow me. And he starts to change us. But he changes us not because we're following a checklist of external rules, but because we start to live out a love relationship with the God of the universe. And as we start to live for him and love him, he starts to transform us from the inside out. That's what holiness is all about. It's about following God as the first love of our life. Now, let me ask you a final question. If you're listening today and and you would admit, yeah, there, there are things in my life that a lot of people probably don't know about. So yeah, I have a label. Pastor, if you knew the thoughts that run through my mind, things I feel in my heart, there is probably a label associated with my name. If that's you this morning, would you just have the courage right now to just lift a hand and say, yeah, that's me, if I'm being honest this morning? A bunch of us. Some of us are too scared to do it. I guarantee if you took some time and searched your heart it's probably a label that's okay we're allowed to be a mess so here's how I want to close our service today in this series I want to lead you in a prayer this morning and here's who this prayer is going to be aimed at this prayer is aimed at those of you who may consider yourself to be a Christian and for those of you who may not But you grew up thinking, if I do this, maybe God won't do this. And if I do this, maybe God will do this. And you grew up kind of negotiating with God. But now you've come to a place in your life and maybe an understanding where you're ready to quit doing that. Where you're ready to quit having that kind of a view about God. Like how Rahab was willing to give up her thinking and her heritage, and her culture, and the way she viewed God, and she was ready to abandon that, to embrace the one true God for who he really was. If that's you this morning, and you're ready to say, from now on, I want to learn to approach God from the standpoint of God, I'm ready for you to meet me right where I'm at, even in my mess. And God, you have permission to start to change me and transform me from the inside out. I love you. I want to follow you for the rest of my life. So if that's you this morning, I'd love for you to to just join me in this prayer. We can bow our heads and and close our eyes and we we can pray together. But would you just pray this? Would you say, Heavenly Father, I believe that your grace is more powerful than my label. I believe Jesus came, he died, and he rose again to pay for all of my sins and for everything those labels represent. And God, I, I believe you offer me a new label. I believe you offer me a relationship with you and you offer me some new labels. Labels like forgiven, forgiven, Accepted. Loved. Teach me to live my life in accordance with who you say that I am. And help me to walk day by day, step by step, in a relationship with you for the rest of my life. God, help me to do that. I want to follow you. In Jesus' name I pray. Can we celebrate some decisions this morning, church? (laughs) Praise God. Praise God. As our worship team um, gets ready to to lead us, I I just want to invite you to respond as you see fit. Um, We'd love for you to stand and be able to sing with us, but these altars are open. If there are some things you need to come and pray about, we invite you and we welcome you to do that. But again, my hope in this series, our, our entire staff team, our worship team, our hope in this series has been that for many of you, Your whole mental model, the way you look at God, would be changed through what Matthew has taught us. That you would look at God not again based on what you have done or haven't done to come into a relationship with Him, but based on what He has done for you. Can we stand together? Let's sing and let's celebrate.
1: Who else would rocks cry out to worship, whose glory taught the stars to shine? Perhaps creation longs to have the words to sing, but this joy song is forever yours a thousand hallelujahs a thousand more
2: god is good time. and all the time good. merry christmas for the next five days everyone <laughs> and happy new year let's pray Oh, God, you're so good to us. We're so thankful to be here at this place this morning with one another in your presence, hearing your word. God, I just pray a a blessing and I pray your, your spirit upon each and every person here, each and every household. Lord, that we would be able to trade the labels that we carry, Lord, the ones that we have given ourselves, the ones that others have given us, Lord. And and even, God, the ones we give to other people, Lord, may we trade those for the labels you give us. That we would see ourselves and see others through your eyes and with your heart. That this coming year, Lord, would be one marked with grace and love obedience pray this in your name go with the grace and the peace of God in this new year amen